O Lord, speak to us as you have spoken eternally to the saints. Father, let us hear your voice through your chosen speaker this morning, O Lord. We ask in Jesus' name that we would hear through your word directly from the heart of God by the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is active among us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're back in Romans 8 this morning, so open there with me if you will. I've been reading ahead, (laughs) and I'm very anxious to preach some other things in Romans than what the apostle laid out, not not different than what he laid out, but maybe not in the order. I would love to preach on chapter 12 and then again on chapter 14, but... um, I'm going to resist, at least for today, and I'm going to continue with where we were in chapter 18, verses 13 through 23 this morning. If you'll turn there with me, I'll read the words that the Apostle wrote to the Church of Rome in the first century. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Amen. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Amen. So it isn't just us. It isn't just the church. But the Lord is going to Redeem all creation. Creation, though it seems to us grandiose and majestic, has undergone corruption with the fall of man. Well, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't the kingdom fall when the king fell? I'm going back to Eden when I say that. And so there are certainly things about creation that will be redeemed as well by the blood of Christ. What an awesome thought. Sadly, we won't get into a lot of that today. Because as I was preparing the notes, I realized this could take many sessions for me to unlock here what Paul has given us, but we're going to take it a piece at a time and not rush through it. And we're going to consider first verse 18, which says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time. In other words, Paul knows that his fellow Roman Christians are suffering various things. Tribulation, persecution, sickness deportation. If you're careful in your reading the book of Acts, you'll find that Claudius, the emperor who succeeded Nero, um, deported some of the saints in Rome. He wanted the Jews out of Rome. And since the Christians were Jews, he deported them. They were undergoing all sorts of persecution at the time. So he's trying to bolster them in their recognition that they have faith to endure even suffering. Now, there's suffering among us. That's why we pray in the morning. And that's why we have the prayer moment between us where we, make our, we throw our prayer needs and our prayer desires into the till, if you will, so that we can each know what the other is struggling with during the week. There is suffering in the world. There will always be suffering. We ought to praise God for the times that we have where we're not suffering, where we're rejoicing. And the Apostle Paul will show us that in most suffering, there is the power of the Holy Spirit to rejoice even then, to glory in the suffering, he says. And we'll get into those kinds of things at some length this morning. And this is nothing new. This suffering thing obviously isn't new. This goes all the way back to Adam's sin in Eden. All the way back. Anyone deliver a child lately? The pain of childbirth goes all the way back to there. I always said, childbirth is very difficult. If my wife wasn't with me in that birthing room, I never would have got through that experience. (laughs) I've often said that. I think I've said that. Um, 
But the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. This glory, this glory now, we have a foretaste. We have the first fruits. Remember the earnest? Remember the down payment, the taste, right? We talked about that. I labored about that. You know, that was one, two, three, four weeks ago. But I hope you remember that. If not, it's all written down. And it's recorded for your edification. But friends, what the apostle is saying here, what he's trying to say is suffering is inevitable. But Christian suffering leads to glory. It is the road. There is suffering on the way to glory. And our present suffering is in fact the inevitable precursor of future glory. Friends, if you haven't suffered, I can make the case you're not a child of God. It's an impoverished Christianity that denies this fact. So much of Christianity today is presented as, you know, make your decision and be free from all suffering. Life becomes easy and blessed and full of abundance. And friends, I believe those things to be true, but the suffering doesn't just disappear. It's there. Every time a loved one gets sick, there's suffering for everyone involved. Every time a beloved loved one dies, even though they're in heaven, we feel bereft of their presence. We feel a grief about it. We, we had our Reformation Fair re- recently, and there's so many things about the life of Luther that we celebrated. We celebrated how he argued against indulgences, which was a very a grave heresy in the church, which, by the way, still persists. Um, we, we talked about how he got his wife. He smuggled her out of a convent in a pickled herring barrel. Those stories are true, by the way. I didn't make them up because they're funny. Um, but he also suffered the loss of his beloved daughter, Magdalena, when I think she was 13 years old. And to the end of his days, he grieved Lena, that he called, what he called her. And it was sad. He had six children with Catherine von Bora. He was married at, I think, 42. She was 26. And uh, we brought that out also at the fair, the the age difference. But um, suffering, even the great saints, there's suffering. And we have it. But we have the power to endure it. And part of that power is to know in our hearts and minds that future glory awaits us that is so blindingly, celestially wonderful, it will block out not the memory of the suffering, but the pain of it. It's that disparate, a comparison. Suffering seems great in the moment. You know, we, you know how we never have enough time? We're always rushed. We don't have time. What did, what did uh, Billy read today in the Proverbs? Don't overwork to be rich. Yeah, none of you are in danger of that. I get it. So, but just kidding. But I mean, there's so much that we, that we long for in this life, and suffering comes upon all of us in some way or another. Um, And so much of Christianity today sells a brand of redemption that's pain-free. Friends, I have to tell you, that is a false Christianity that is, dare I say, a a cultic brand of Christianity. And I'm not saying every denomination that preaches that is a cult. I am not going there. I don't go there. I don't brand brand, um, movements unnecessarily. We all have error that we deal with in our understanding. But to sell a brand of Christianity that's pain-free is simply not the gospel that this apostle preaches. It's not the gospel of Christ. Paul himself was chosen for redemption with these words to Ananias. You may remember God said, Ananias said, I've heard bad things about this guy, Lord. And the Lord said, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Of Peter and John, it is written, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. They rejoiced in suffering. They said, we really are chosen. Look how we are opposed. Look how they make us suffer for what we believe. They rejoiced in it, it says. To the Hebrews, it's written, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. In other words, when you're suffering, think about Jesus and what he endured. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
And then he says this, you've not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin as Jesus did. In other words, your, your, your suffering is less than his so far. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The, James wrote, count it all joy when you, fall, when you fall into various trials. You know that from James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because trials produce something. They produce something. It's part of the work of sanctification. It's part of the work of maturing in our Christian faith. Suffering is the pathway to glory, but there is a glory also in the suffering itself, as we saw with the apostles here. And so we read, and not only that, Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 5, but we also glory in tribulations. I preached on it some weeks ago. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and on down the line other character traits. Persecution, form of suffering, produces something in us that is good and that is edifying to one another and glorifying to God. I'm trying to think who it was. Maybe John Newton who said, when he contemplates the wondrous cross, he sees the great sufferer upon the cross. Peter wrote, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. That's the, that's the antidote to the why me aspect of suffering. Why me? Why not, why not him? Everything's good for him. You know, the psalmist goes through this. You see the, in the psalms. Why does everything go well for the sinner and I'm the righteous and look how rough it is on me? Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but Paul is taking us through this. We're in chapter 8 and it's time to grow up in our faith. That when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. I suffered with him. And look at him now. And let's not forget that famous promise of Christ who said to his beloved, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul could see that the Romans of his day were suffering for their faith. And it's endemic in people. And Christian people are no exception that suffering wears us down. I've been worn down by suffering. I've said, how long, O Lord, how long? And we always think, as I hinted at moments ago, that time is an enemy of us, but time puts a limit on suffering, doesn't it? Suffering wears us down. It chips away at hope. That's why he's trying to instill hope in the moment of suffering. These people are suffering now as he's, as he's written to them, as, it, as it's being read in their church. They're suffering now. It discourages faith. It can discourage faith. It cannot wipe it out, but it can discourage it. And though Paul and me would never downplay the severity of the sufferings, I never do that. I never do that. Sufferings are real. That's why we pray. I never minimize someone's struggle, someone's suffering. I don't think it's the right thing to do. Oh, don't worry about it. Jesus will take care of that in the end. Oh, everything will turn out all right. I, I try never to do that to someone. You should empathize. You weep with those who weep. You rejoice with those who rejoice. But at the same time, you don't allow a brother or sister to go all the way down into the dumps of despair. The Christian cannot despair. And so we don't minimize the suffering of one another. The person of faith, though, must ever be aware that the promise of future glory is not only profound and unimaginable, it's grandiose and it's guaranteed. It is coming. You suffer now, but it's not forever. But the glory that comes is forever. And here's the apostle's meaning. Suffering is preparation for glory. Now I want to take a moment to consider that the apostle's meaning may not be restricted to the mere suffering of the individual believer. This is when, as I'm preparing the sermon, I sort of went off on a little stream of consciousness. This happens. This happens sometimes. I've, it's, kind of like when, it's kind of like when John said, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, I was in the Spirit on Friday, and I began to just go off on this, and I thought, suffering, he's talking about a world scale. He's talking about the cosmos is corrupt. Something's wrong out there. 
Before they even made plastics and fossil fuels, something was wrong. The whole case talking on a universal scale here. Maybe it is not just the suffering of the individual believer, though that's certainly included here. Where he's speaking on a world scale with regard to the references to all creation, he could well be including all the accumulated suffering of the human race from the moment of the fall to the glorious future reclamation of all things. There's a lot of suffering that's accumulated in that time. Indeed, the suffering of which he speaks is on a world scale. It's on a historical scale. Show me a time when there was no suffering. All of creation, he says, was subject to futility. That means emptiness. That means vanity. Unproductiveness. And by the blood of Christ, creation itself, he tells us, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Creation itself is in bondage just as we are. Or as we were, I should say. But we were justified. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? And so we have a foretaste of it. Glory isn't here yet, not in its fullest extent. We must never think it's here in its fullest extent. So all these things throughout all of our history as a race, creation, and man with it, has suffered horribly in the wake of what? God's wrath. God has been punishing sin all these eons. For it is wrath that is Paul's introduction to this epistle. Let us not forget that. It is the wrath of God unleashed in the cosmos that must be assuaged in order for the world to regain its initial pristine order and beauty and divine purpose. For the wrath of God, he wrote, is revealed from heaven. Revealed from heaven. Heaven is somewhere beyond the created order. It's not outer space. God's not an astronaut. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. He's talking about the whole extent of historical creation. And so his wrath extends to the corners of the universe. And the suffering of which he speaks is to a universally unimaginable extent. And yet Christ on that cross paid the price for all that, and it will be renewed. It is the promise. And the apostles worked his way up to this doctrine. He introduces the subject of glory, but it's a future glory, friends. It's not yet seen, but it's on the way. It's been ushered in at Calvary by the spilt blood of the precious Son. It comes on the wings of the Word, by whom all things were made, and by whom all things will be remade. Let there be light, he said, and there was light. Let us make man in our image, and man was made. Let the waters cover the whole earth, and they did cover it. And now our gospel tells us that the Word, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, by whom all things were made, may be heard throughout the cosmos that the blood has washed over the world. And out of the suffering that shed that blood, so would come the glory that was bought by that same blood. And the word will say with a loud voice, let all creation be renewed together in an instant, and it will be renewed. That's what he's talking about. A new word from the creator. In its time, let the created order, subject to futility, in bondage to corruption, be renewed. And it will be renewed in an instant. And the gospel of Christ is that word. It's the beginning. It's the foretaste. It's the message that must go out to all the world to which the apostle remains unashamed. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So the apostle goes in. He speaks of glory. Did you notice Paul didn't tell us what glory is? He never defined it. He just assumed we knew. So I think we better go and understand something that they may have known then that didn't need to be explained. Glory is doka in the Greek. And I'm going to give you a, a verbatim definition from the lexicon. It says, glory or doka, of the nature and acts of God in self-manifestation, that is what he essentially is and does 
as exhibited in whatever way he reveals himself in these respects, and particularly in the person of Christ, in whom essentially his glory has ever shown forth and ever will do. Boy, did that not do it for me. I don't even really know what's going on there. Um, I don't think that as he said doka or doxa to the Romans that they thought, oh, let me see, he's saying glory. Oh, he means um, of the nature and acts of God and self-manifestation, that is that he, what he essentially is and does and exhibited in whatever way he reveals himself in these respects, and particularly in the person of Christ in whom uh, essentially his glory has ever shown forth and ever will do. That's what he's talking about. That didn't do it for me. I remain unassured that the lexicon's definition is helpful. I'm sure it's the definition. But we're talking about glory here. Paul speaks of glory without defining it. He assumes an understanding of the term. Glory is the ultimate end for redeemed mankind and the world from which man emerged. It's the veil of God. You know, the ancients, the medieval, the Renaissance artists, right, love to paint the saint with a sort of celestial glory. You know the halo? They have the big light on their heads. And they travel in light. There's this one statue Michelangelo did of, of Moses where he has these little horns. <laughs> he looks like the devil, but the horns are supposed to be light beams going out. But I mean, how long can you extend a piece of marble? No, we do all these things to simulate glory. But the best way to understand glory is through the Word of God. The written Word. Glory is the ultimate end for redeemed mankind and the world from which he emerged. It is the veil of God. God's wrapped in it. So often they talk about the saints. We, we, remember the, the parable of the wedding feast? They came, but they didn't have a garment. You can't get in without a garment. You have to have a wedding garment, right? He talked about our garments would be washed and cleaned without spot or blemish before God. Talks about being wrapped in light, in glory. So it's the veil of God wrapped around his creatures who were made in his image and likeness. It is a celestial robe, a heavenly garment, if you will, that's given to clothe the redeemed. And it's only for the redeemed. The unredeemed get melted with the earth when it is melted away. Where forgiveness and justification are the beginning of salvation... Sanctification and mortification of the deeds of the flesh are the effects of salvation. Glorification is the end. It's the conclusion, the climax, the ultimate purpose of salvation is to glorify the saints. What does it really mean? Make us like Christ. Clothe us in light. John writes, Beloved, now we're children of God, but it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What does that say to me? Glory is contagious. You can catch it from Christ. It can be caught by close contact with the glorious one. One cannot stand in the presence of glory without becoming glorious himself or burned to a cinder. But the blood is on the doorposts and lintels of your heart. And you're fireproof. We sing of it. We sing of it often, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, of the new heaven and the new earth, the glorious heaven and the glorious earth, right? John writes, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I mean, that is an awesome concept. Is it just me? I mean, that's an awesome concept. We don't need the temple. Paul said, God does not live in temples made with hands. The Athenians that he was talking to spent a lot of human ingenuity to, to, to build temples made with hands, and they were glorious in a human sense. The glory of man is mistaken often for the glory of God, friends. But the glory of man is known by one word down through the ages. The synonym for the glory of man is the word ruins. We know of the ancient glory of man that is faded. We have to dig in the sands of time to even find scraps and evidence of the vast glory of man. God's glory isn't like that. There's no temple, for the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light, he said. Glory has to do with light. 
And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. But they shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life shall enter that glory. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life, John writes. This is Jesus Christ showing the apostle. He's in a cave. He's in prison in a cave. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb of God. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. Glory is looking upon the face of God. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. You know what that says to me? There'll be no sleep there. (laughs) You'll have a glorified body. It won't get tired. So you better have plenty to do. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. Friends, you look at the sun and see the light. The glory of God is a greater light than that. For the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You know, it was, if you ever heard the uh, creation story be criticized because God created light before he created the sun? Well, how could he create light before he created the sun? Let there be light, and then later on he creates the sun and the moon, the greater light and the lesser light. Oh, how could he do that? See, it's an ancient myth. They didn't even get that right. He is the light. He comes with light. He wraps himself in light. He doesn't have to do what I do, get myself over, turn that light on. It's so stubborn. It doesn't want to come on. And and then it doesn't want to go off. I put it in my pocket so many times, and I look around, and there's this light beaming around me. (laughs) God is the light. He doesn't need that. Glory, it seems, is a light, and it would be a blinding light to any who were to look upon it with unredeemed eyes. Don't try to do that. Get saved before you look for God. (laughs) But to the redeemed, it's the light of grace and truth and everlasting life. The light and the glory are the garment of God bestowed upon the redeemed. I think that's a better definition. And I think readers of the Old Testament in Paul's day, which, by the way, was the Bible, (laughs) didn't have the New Testament, I think readers of that then knew, knew about this. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrote the psalmist. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. Stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He who made the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. His ministers a flame of fire. It's all about this light and heat. (laughs) We're never to think of our salvation as simply forgiveness of sins. We have to get over a couple of things. We can't grow in Christ until we do this. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you're not going to hell. That's the beginning. What have you done for me lately? We should not rest our thoughts and hopes on the fact that salvation is mere deliverance from hell. It is all these things, and it's assured, and it's promised. Yet Paul would have us look to the future, to the end, to the ultimate purpose of God and the sufferings of Christ. Why did Christ suffer? What's the ultimate purpose of God in the sufferings of Christ? It's glorification. God would rather bring something for nothing than to start with raw materials given him by someone else. It's when all things become what God intended for them since the very beginning. Friends, there was a form of glory in Eden, but it's not like the glory that awaits us. The process of the intended glory for creation was marred and it was halted by the fall. But through the blood of Christ, it's begun again. And so Paul writes, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Friends, I have no idea. Actually, I have a really pretty good idea as to why predestination is so controversial. It's because we love ourselves too much and believe we have the right to freedom of will The fact is, friends, God is not even sovereign if he didn't do the choosing. 
And predestination means predestination, and I didn't make up the word. It's a Greek word. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You are here today because God decided it. You think it's because you felt good this morning and your car had some gas in it. That's not why. God decided you'd be here before the foundation of the world to hear this message. And every other little thing in your life that happens is predestined, as well as your salvation. He predestined those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. Are you conformed to the image of his son? Then you were predestined by God. You were chosen for glory. And he's going to belabor this in this chapter and in the next. And if you're still uncertain and uh, unwilling to accept the idea that you really had no choice in your salvation, you'll come to that understanding when we go through these next two chapters because it is just inescapable. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. There it is. You're predestined because you're called. And the ones he called are the ones he justified. And the ones he justified are the ones he is going to glorify. Glorification, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, means full and entire deliverance from sin and evil in all their effects and in every respect, body, soul, and spirit. I like that definition better. The whole of man will be completely and entirely delivered, he writes, from every harmful effect of sin, every tarnishing, polluting effect of sin, not only so we shall become like the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect men, glorified men. That's what doka means. And Paul writes, for I consider, your translation may say, for I reckon. I like reckon better, I'll tell you why. I know that when we say I reckon, <laughs> they say that in westerns all the time. Cowboys reckon a lot of things. Want to go in, uh, into town and get some, get some lunch? I reckon, Right? But um, I reckon you can generally mean I'm okay with it or I'm of the opinion, right? The same may be said of I consider, I suppose. But that too is simplistic. Um, I think reckon is better and more descriptive because for the simple reason that it expresses what the apostle's saying here. To reckon is to deduce. Paul gave all these facts of salvation, right? Forgiveness, justification, blood of Christ spilt for you shed upon you, right? Gave all these things. And now he's deduced all those doctrines, in fact, and he can reckon something. To reckon is to deduce. It is to come to a logical conclusion considering all the factors involved in the process. Paul has taught all these things, many profound things, many astounding doctrines thus far in the epistle, and he's taught us assurance. Those of us who've been infilled with the Holy Spirit have been renewed. And with renewal of life, we encounter a renewal of purpose. And with renewal of purpose, we've renewed hope in a glorious outcome. Remember, we have been justified. That's the great doctrine of justification by faith, right? Our transgressions before a holy God have been paid for. The prospect of perdition has been lifted. You can't go to hell. None shall grasp you out of my Father's hand, right? And so the apostle labored over this from chapter 5 on. We have a new spirit working within us, working toward our righteous witness. This same spirit guarantees our future glorification and inspires hope in our present sufferings. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. And if we're children, then heirs. And if we're heirs, we're inheritors of a divine fortune laid up for us in heaven. We're sons of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. We know to whom we belong. Just as Jesus is the begotten Son, we are the adopted sons and daughters of the Father. We've been taught that we share a blessed union with Christ We were in Adam, we are now in Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ died and was buried, and so did we die with him. Or did you not know, Paul writes, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He was made alive, we too will be made alive. Therefore, he writes, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should all walk in newness of life. For if we have been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Therefore we may reckon. 
Because of all those things I just ran through. That's what Paul's saying. Remember, this is one letter. He said all these things. Therefore, because of all those realities, all those concrete doctrines of truth, he may now reckon that we will be glorified beyond all that we suffer in the present life. We may deduce with him, we may conclude what Paul concludes, that after having understood all the evidence leading to this point, that just as we were justified, just as we were sanctified, just as our sins were mortified, we will be glorified. Forgiveness is only the beginning. Justification is the first step. Glorification is the ultimate, eternal manifestation of God's grace upon a saint and upon the cosmos. There's a sense in which the fall of man was a fall from glory. Adam had a certain glory. And salvation in Christ is a return to past glory before the fall, right? That's an aspect of it. Though we may not stop there, for the glory that awaits us is an unimaginable condition. There's a certain glory. Adam wasn't going to die till sin entered the world. The plan was not that, right? The glory in store for the faithful far surpasses the glory of Eden. From where we stand, it's only a thing that can be hinted at, looked at through a glass darkly. Now, how do I know that? There's a couple of hints in Scripture that let me know that the future glory will be greater than the glory of Eden. And I'll tell you why that is. Because in Eden, the angels were still more powerful than the humans. For one thing, angels will never block the way of the saints again, not in glory. In heaven, the angels will bow down to the glorious saints. It's different. It's a greater glory. We share Christ's glory. We inherit what he is. So there's a sense in which we go back to the glory of Adam, but there's a greater sense in which we far surpass that. Calvin, as he often does, warns against imagination. So I, I want to uh, heed that warning. To think beyond what is written is a sort of sinful presumption, right? Calvin writes, It's not meet nor right for us to inquire more curiously. For if reins be given to speculations, where will they at length lead us? Let us then be content with this simple doctrine that such will be the constitution and the complete order of things that nothing will be deformed or fading. He doesn't allow us to use our imaginations beyond that. He takes his hints from Paul to the Corinthians, which I'll get to, but in the beginning we're told that man was made in the image and likeness of God. He was made perfect in body and mind. And why do I say perfect? Because there was no sickness, there was no death. He was made Lord over the animal kingdom, Lord over all creation. Adam got to name everything, remember. Everything that was made was made for man's sake and made for man to rule and enjoy. There was certainly a type of glory in all of this. Only man had this divine image dwelling in his being. There was a special dignity and importance given to the man that was not shared with other creatures or other parts of creation. Though man was made in the image of God, we should by no means imagine that man was divine in his being. Let's remember something. We have a union with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, but there is still a uniqueness of Christ that he retains as God. There was a special likeness of God that God imparted into the man. There was a lordship bestowed upon man over creation. But God was Lord of the universe and its creator. And so the Lord of the universe was Lord over the Lord of creation. You got it? <laughs> there was a simple divine hierarchy implied in the created order. I wanted to go in and compare this to Joseph. Remember, I was trying to think, where, where in Scripture can I compare this? But um, uh, I may get to it at another time. But if you recall... Joseph, well, he suffered much as Christ suffered. I mean, the 30 pieces of silver, right? You know, all the, the uh, very similar types of things that happened to Joseph. You know, his brothers sold him into slavery, um, debated whether or not to kill him, but just as, might as well as killed him. His father grieved the loss. He was separated from his father, all these things. And then by a special grace that God had given him, he got exalted into a in a strange land, and it, and it says in there that he became as Pharaoh. He became as Pharaoh. Joseph really was 
Lord over all things except for Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh trusted him, and he loved him, and he gave him um, great um, authority in the land, right? But Pharaoh was still over him. And that's kind of where we were with Adam. Adam was Lord over the universe, but God was still God, right? So the sense of divine glory imparted into the man is hinted at in other places in Scripture. One is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where we read of the Word, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. There's a piece of glory that every man knows. There's a piece of it. There's more than a hint given uh, of the divine spark of glory in all men spoken of. In this epistle, in chapter 1, we read, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, meaning all men. All men have a spark of understanding of divinity in them. How do we know? Because God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. That's us. We're the things that are made, and there is an implicit statement here that we are cognizant of divinity in the universe. His invisible attributes are seen, understood, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that all men are without excuse. To deny God, you have no excuse. He's shown himself to you. You just didn't look at the evidence. And the evidence was within you and all around you. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. Although they knew God. You see, Paul, now he can imply that. Although they knew God. I've already told you that they know God. God made himself known to them. His invisible attributes were seen. Even his eternal power, Godhead, was all seen. And although they knew God, they did not glorify him. They did not glorify him as God. And they became futile in their thoughts. I always told you, faith keeps you from being futile in your thoughts. It is the unfaithful that are futile in their thoughts, friends. Faith doesn't mean you cash in your intellect. Oh, I just believe. Doesn't mean that. Faith isn't blind. Fate is blind. Providence has eyes, Spurgeon said. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because they didn't believe in God. You don't believe in glory, the glory goes away. You don't look to the light, your eyes are darkened. There's no light for you. What each man knows of his own glory in relation to the glory of God is given him at birth by God. Each man is the custodian of his own perceptions. You don't have to believe what you believe. We believe what we want to believe. Each one is responsible to consider that though the glory of man seems great in the things that he's accomplished, it all pales in comparison to what he knows. Somewhere in his being is the greater glory of Almighty God. Man fails when he's drawn away by his thoughts of his own glory. You remember the man in Greek myth, Narcissus? I hear people say, I hear pundits say, I hear some of you say, oh, he's a narcissist. <laughs> I hear that a lot. I just want you to know what a narcissist is. It's a self-worshipper. Narcissus looked into the pool and saw how beautiful he was. And I have no doubt he was quite beautiful, probably quite attractive. And he fell in love with himself, <laughs> the, the myth tells us. So we say we're narcissistic. It's a self-love. It's a self-love on steroids. It's the kind of love that Lucifer had, isn't it? He saw his own beauty, son of the morning. He exalted himself above the Most High, and God cast him down for that. No, self-love is a horrible thing. It's made out as such an easy thing. There's such cliches that we live by. I heard someone say recently, you got to take your mind out of it and just feel it with your heart. I thought, what a stupid advice that is. (laughs) You know? Don't think, just feel your way through life. What are my glands telling me to do next? (laughs) You know? You're either going to use your mind or some other gland. (laughs) Trust me, gentlemen. Um, What each man knows of his own glory in in relation to the glory of God is given him by God. And each one of us is responsible to consider that the glory of man seems great, friends, but it's perishable. You know... We have great cities. We have great, wonderful things. Airports, air travel. Air travel's awesome when you think about it. You get into this tube, 
stuffed into this tube, right? Ladies come by and give you the little pack of Cheez-Its. Have you flown lately? When, you know, when you used to fly, you got meals. Do you, anyone remember meals on planes? Drinks, meals, coffee, dessert, you know? Now it's like, would you like some Cheez-Its or some Bugles? <laughs> Not that I care. I really don't care. But the last time Karen and I flew, we, um, she's coming by, and I'm thinking, they got these little tiny packets of Cheez-Its. You know what I mean? Now, I never eat Cheez-Its, but I, I, I remember, oh, yeah, I love Cheez-Its. So if I'm going to have a snack, I want the Cheez-Its. So she comes by, and she says to the guy right before me, oh, we ran out of Cheez-Its. And I'm like, no stinking Cheez-Its. We got air travel. The glory of man can't produce enough Cheez-Its for Danny. And so I said to her, I heard you say we're out of Cheez-Its. Did I get something else? No, I was like, I don't want anything. I came here for Cheez-Its, brother. She said, I'll tell you what, I'll get you some. Never came back. But the story goes on. We flew home. And a different lady comes by. She says, what would you have? And I said, I'm going to tell you something. I I want Cheez-Its, and I want two packs. And I'm going to tell you why. Because on the way down, the lady promised me Cheez-Its and never showed up. My wife said, I would complain. I said, I don't complain about Cheez-Its. I'm a Christian. (laughs) Christians need their Cheez-Its. So you know what she did? She came by. She goes, don't tell anyone. She threw three or four packs at me. All the Cheez-Its a man could want or desire. Why did I start this? Oh, yeah. The glory of man. (laughs) My boys are thinking, yeah, that's him. (laughs) He would do that. Uh, But the glory of man, you're in his plane. And a couple hours later, you're 2,000 miles away. And it was cold when you get on. Actually, this time it was warm when we got on. And you come out and it's sunny. You're in a whole different climate. I mean, that's pretty glorious stuff. But, you know, I really have a feeling that as far as the accomplishments, as far as the, the visible, textual glory of man, that we're in a far less glorious time than other times in history. Do you ever get that feeling? Like when Paul walked down the streets of Athens and they were lined with marble temples to the gods. That was a glorious thing. I mean, we are still using architectural principles that those people taught us. And some of us, some of them can't be taught. No one knows how they built the pyramids. And there's all these other structures. No one knows how they built it. I bet it was a Stonehenge a couple of years ago. The stones are as big as this room. And the, and the building of it goes back before the Roman Empire. How did they do it? Aliens. <laughs> I, I always wonder, why do aliens worship pagan gods? Or were they the pagan gods the pagans worshipped? I have my theories. The glory of man, friends, it's fading. It's great. It's, it's deceptive because it is great. Go look at some of the glory. Go look at the Vatican that the indulgences of the saints paid for as they all went to hell without the gospel. Think about that. But the Vatican, as a work of art, is a glorious thing. It can confuse us. But the glory of God is greater. It's imperishable. It doesn't fade. It doesn't wear out. Man fails when he's drawn away by his thoughts of his own glory and considers not the glory of God. That's where we fail. And because the man Adam was made Lord of all creation, his fall was the fall of creation, just as the fall of a king is the fall of a kingdom. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is where the maxim of Calvin, not to think beyond what is written, may be of great use to us. It waits for the revealing. It's not revealed yet. Okay? So let us not pretend to know. Paul wrote the same thing Calvin said there. Actually, I'm sure that it was Calvin that followed Paul since he was 1,500 years later. But he said, learn in us, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, learn in us not to think beyond what is written. This is what God reveals. You've got to be content with what he reveals. Don't pretend you know more and you're some kind of super prophet or something, as so many preachers have done. For this reason, I've always been skeptical of books written about things only hinted at in Scripture. I am not interested very much. Over the years, there's been a lot of writings about angels and demons and heaven and what heaven is like. 
there's only what's revealed in Scripture. It, um, I'm very wary of those kinds of things for the people of God to... I mean, it's one thing to have a curiosity about what people are saying, and I've, you know, intellectual curiosity, I think, is a good thing if you have enough um, Christian maturity to recognize what's true and what's false. I'm not opposed to you reading virtually anything. Um, but I have to say, don't fall in line with things God hasn't revealed yet. There's always a danger in that. I'm a suspect of conclusion regarding angels, demons, and heaven itself, and I'm wary of transgressing beyond what is revealed, for it is not the nature, or is that rather not the nature of the sin of Adam? Isn't that what Adam did? He wondered, the devil made him wonder what it would be like to be like God, to eat of the knowledge. It's the tree of knowledge. Obviously, you haven't eaten of it, so you don't have that knowledge, but God has it. He's withholding it. He thought beyond what was written. He was enticed. You see how dangerous it can be? A cosmos can fall. There's an eternal lore to become as God. We should glory in divine revelation and be wary of human speculation. And so Jesus said to John the Apostle, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written herein. <laughs> right? And if anyone takes away from these things, God will take away his name from the book of life. Verses 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Do you notice that Paul is doing what so many of the prophets have done? He's personifying creation. Remember, was it Isaiah that said the trees shall clap their hands? Trees don't have hands, right? So they can't really clap. But it was talking about, it was a personification of nature. We have to understand, God revealed himself in words and in genres of liter literature, and one of those genres is poetry, right? Which is concerned with symbolism and, um, you know, other such um, conventions. So Paul's doing that here with all of creation, as though creation has a will of its own. It was subjected to futility, not willingly. It was subjected upon it by Adam, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Friends, creation itself will be made better when we are glorified and, our, and the betterment in us is manifested. The betterment in us that began when we believed will be manifested. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Notice how he mentions birth pangs. That goes right back to the curse of Eden, right? Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I'll tell you, he began talking about suffering, he ended talking about glory, and there is a sense in which Suffering makes us long for glory. Get it over with, Lord. I've had enough. I can't tell you how many people I've known who actually said that in their old age and suffering and in the last seasons of life and have had it enough and felt blessed and ready to go and knowing where they were going. It's an awesome thing. Suffering produces that desire for glory, that, that sense in us that we haven't arrived and that the things that are happening now will fade away as to be so unimportant in eternity. The sufferings that you suffer now. There's a limit on suffering. No limit on glory. Our Father, in Jesus' name, bless us all with a great revelation of the truth of this, your holy word. And let us long for the glory that awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen.